please turn to their Bibles, to our scripture text found in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. All right, thanks back for reading the last chapter in Mark. We're here. Made it through the gospel. This is the last Sunday. I'm excited um, to be in this text with you guys. And you probably immediately can tell uh, one of the themes being fear. And uh, I'm sure you are unfortunately familiar with the realities of fear. So often, fear comes because we've lost control. Something's unfamiliar. What we thought we knew we could control isn't panning out the way we thought. I took Landon one time to go see a movie. We went to go see the new Paw Patrol movie. I didn't know we were going to be the only one in the theater. I didn't think about it's going to be really dark and a totally different experience and like an intense scene in the movie. And he was crying. And I, just, I was like, I don't even, I, it took me a while to figure out what was happening. And it turned out he was scared because it was so unfamiliar and uncontrollable. And it was all coming at him in ways that he had no ability to uh, change. And it was overwhelming. And I'm sure you know that experience. Like whether it is in the moment when you hear this thump, this bump in the night, and you're like, that's not normal. And you, you feel out of control or you're driving a car you've driven this route a hundred times thousands of times and the car begins to spin out of control and fear sets in you're on a hike you know the trail and now you know you're not on it and you have no idea where to go and that fear like that reality that we experience when expectations come untrue like what you thought was going to happen isn't happening fear we're afraid. That's what's happening. In today's text, we meet some women who go to the tomb. They knew the reality of death. They, they know the expectation of going to the tomb. What is going to happen when we go? It felt very rational. It felt very ordinary. In fact, it felt pretty universal. This is what happens when you go to a tomb of a dead person. They go to anoint him. And yet what we're going to see is this, that Jesus, the misunderstood suffering servant who came to give his, life, give his life as a ransom, rises from the dead. So we see in the beginning, we'll see in verses 1 through 3, their expectation. Like, what, what were they expecting? They weren't expecting this, which moves us, of course, to 
verses four through six, where we see that the unexpected happened. And then finally, of course, their response, this response of fear, this response of being afraid. They come face to face with the fact that there's no body in the grave and what that does to them. So that's where we're going to go today. But what you're going to see, I hope, is that in the gospel of Mark, Mark has given us the opposite of fear for him. The opposite of fear is faith. The reality that when someone rises from the dead, it's right to be able to meet that with fear. That should cause some awe and some trembling. But when you, when you have this fear and you move from fear to faith, what happens is that fearful reality actually moves from being fear to joy. Fear actually flees in the side of faith. And I think you're going to see that as we look at the resurrection, which is actually good news, but starts with this fearful reality. So I'd love to pray as we look at such incredible realities, such central truths to our faith. Um, So let me pray and then we'll uh, set our scene and, and look at the text together. Father, you are a God who we are right to fear, to tremble, to be in awe of. And if it weren't for your son and the faith that he makes possible, we would be stuck in our fear and trembling. And yet because of faith brought by the cross and the resurrection, we move from fear to good news. So as we look at your word, would you make the good news come alive? And would that good news transform how we live today in light of the reality of the resurrection, that we'd be those who know our sin is forgiven, that we have a destination, a place we're going that's promised to us, and that we have no cause to fear when we are grounded in faith. So be with us, Father, and and show us now the truth in your word, and let us submit and be under your word now. Would your word go forth? In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we always normally start with um, setting the scene of the, the, the context, and we see that we're in this, the Sabbath. It was past, and now it's the scene. Jesus is in the tomb. The stone, theoretically, in their minds was meant to be there. So Jesus has died on the cross, but we ended in chapter 15. He hasn't yet risen. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story. But in setting the context for today, we need to spend just a little bit more time because I would guess in your Bible, you would see Mark verses 9 through 20. And you just heard me say, this is our last Sunday in Mark. And you might be thinking, we're missing a couple here. And so let's talk about that for a minute because I would imagine in your Bible, it says something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20 or something along those lines. And I want to pause because I want to take some time so that we might leave this morning with yet just another reminder of the confidence we can have in God's word. And so we're going to talk about why are we stopping at verse 8 and what's going on when you see that note so the, maybe the, the best place to start is to just put ourselves back in the day when Mark is writing his gospel. And just think for a moment, Mark writes his gospel with the attention, like, I want to spread this. I want it to go out to a bunch of people, right? And so what do you what do? You do? But you, you hand write the copy. 
that you're going to spread. And so scribes would write word for word what they saw. And so we have in the goodness of, of God as the good news was spreading, we have like 20,000 plus copies of parts of the New Testament. Some were just fragments, some are the whole New Testament, some are just letters. So we have all of these copies and as you can imagine, you've got 20,000 copies. What that means is that you can sit here this morning with great confidence that what you hold in your hand is what the apostles, what John and, and Mark and Paul wrote. But what, you, what I think is helpful for you to just understand, in case you haven't known this, we don't have the original gospel written by the pen of Mark, what are called autographs. What we have are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of copies that give us great confidence that we can know what Mark actually wrote when he first penned it. So if we, we don't have these original ones, but we've got all these copies. And so what, what you do when you've got all these copies is just, just picture 20,000 copies. There might be a discrepancy or two in that, like thousands of discrepancies, because just imagine you're handwriting the gospel of Mark and you forget a letter or you like skip a line by accident or you reverse words. And so sure enough, like when you look at all these copies, right, there's, there's differences among the copies. But if you've got 99% of the copies say one thing, and 1% says another, we can be pretty confident which one was the correct reading, right? Which one did Mark actually write? And so that's what happens over and over and over. We just look at it and we say, this, this is very clear. Now, occasionally there are moments when are, are less clear and every time it's like almost always, vast majority, letters, small words that have no bearing to the significance of the meaning of the text. And so, you, you put all this together and you get this majority of make really, I'll don't even alter the menu passage, something like, you know, uh, it's just, just imagine one, like, instead of quiet, it's quite. And you're like, it's really clear what they meant. And context is quiet, not quite, you know, something like that. Now they weren't writing in English, right? In Greek. So, okay, that's what's happening. Now there are occasional moments when then it's not just a, a letter or a word, but a larger section of scripture. There's really two main ones in our Bible, this ending in Mark and then um, in John's gospel of the woman caught in adultery. And so when we come to this, I just wanted to pause and say, what, well, what's going on in this ending? So Mark, um, as best like we can tell, you go back to the earliest, most reliable manuscripts, and none of them have this longer ending. So we're really very confident that Mark did not write verses 9 through 20. Now, like I just like just picture, I, I don't think like any malice or bad things happen. We don't know how this ending, ultimately, we don't know how it came about. It is an early ending. But you could just imagine a scribe looks at verse 8 and is like, that's a pretty stunning ending, for they were afraid. That Mark, I, the last scribe must have forgotten to put the ending, or like they fell asleep and mailed this out, and you know, <laughs> like whatever. And they're like, I'm going to just 
it's, it's pretty clear. Look at the other gospels, how they ended. I'm just going to write what very clearly is the ending or maybe it worn off. We don't know. Okay, this is speculation. But the reality is what we have is later on, further removed from close to Mark writing his gospel, we get this ending added. So when you, um, when you come then to, to that, you, you come to a discrepancy. You, you go back to the earliest, most reliable manuscripts. And when we do, it ends at verse eight. Now, what that means is that the ending from nine to 20, we would say is not part of the inspired word of God, though it doesn't mean that it's not instructive or has something to say. And in fact, here's, a, here's just good news as you look at that. When you look at this, when you look at the verses 9 through 20, all the main ideas occur in other spots in the Bible. So you get this, for example, Luke 24 reports these two travelers when you read in verses 9 through 20, these two travelers, and you, you get Luke 24 reporting it, or you've got this kind of great commission in Mark's, Mark's words, and sure enough, that mirrors Matthew 28, or you've got this snake piece and these miraculous signs, and what do you get in Acts? But Paul gets bitten by a snake, and he survives. And so here's, here's maybe a way we'd, to, to summarize it as you see something like this. The particular verses, though not included in the inspired word of God, and so what we would say is that there would be, we'd say don't take any personal application or key beliefs drawn from verses 9 through 20 that are not clearly demonstrated in other parts of scripture. You would, so, so go to other texts. You see something there, you go to other texts and you see what the inspired word of God has to say. So it, like, let me see if this helps. It'd be like this. If you, you've got a really good friend and they're just longing for this dream job, they've got the interview and you, you go into you know, work the next day and, and another person comes to you and says, did you hear they got the job? And you're like, no way, that's incredible. And what do you do? You pick up the phone and you call the friend directly because you want to hear it from them. You're like, I'm not just going to go with this random source who told me they got the job. I'm going to go straight to the source that's reliable. And so you call them up and you hear directly. And so here's, what, here's all I'm saying. The ending of Mark, this 9 through 20, has true things to say, but let's go to the, the sources. Let's go to, rightly, probably, where the scribes went to and go to Luke and go to Matthew and, and go there and ground yourself in that. So this um, ending, though, I'm going to say two things because I think these two things matter when you think about the ending. I know this is long. We can go back to the text. I just want you to know what's happening when you look at your Bible. But um, what, number one, when you look at the truths in that, there's no major doctrines are at stake, especially when you see all of the doctrines here are affirmed elsewhere. So nothing major is at stake. And all the truths that are there, all the true things, the, the, main, the main big picture realities that are in there, um, you, you can find in other places in your Bible. So um, here's, here's some just closing thoughts. When you're talking about any of these discrepancies, here's what I want you to know. I'd want you to know that there are no zero major doctrines of the Christian faith that are at all affected in some of, some of the discrepancies that we see. None of them. Like you, all the core truths of the reality of our faith are solid, rock solid. Like we know this is what they said. 
There's no, like, it might be a small quibble over a letter, and we are so certain of what they said and what Jesus said and what our Bibles read. The, the pillars of our faith are firmly established. And so here's a, a statement our, our church would align with from the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy that I think just kind of puts this together. And I'll say one more thing. If you're, if you're trying to stitch all this together, what does this mean? How do we even talk about it? Here it is. This is the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. This is what it says. We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographs. That's the, the main, like, original text of Scripture, which, in the providence of God, can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. That's true. So we further affirm that the copies and translations of Scripture are the Word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. So here's what we would deny. We deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs. We further deny that their absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. God had however many ways he could have chosen to preserve his word. He chose to preserve his word by giving us thousands upon thousands of copies. And we don't know all of the reasons why God chose to do this, but we have very clear, it's clear this is how he chose to do it. And, and when you think about this, if, if God was to um, show that this is how he intended to preserve his word, he, here's a couple things. Number one, there is nothing, nothing of ancient text that comes anywhere close to the Old Testament or New Testament and the manuscripts that we have. So you take Plato, I'm just, just to give you some comparisons, Plato, We've got seven manuscripts from Plato. They're 1,500 years after he lived. Aristotle does a little better. We've got 49. Now, these are pre-New Testament, but just feel the difference. We've got 49 manuscripts from Aristotle. He's 1,400 years after. So if you're God and you're going to preserve your word and you want your people to know I'm preserving my word and I'm doing it by giving you thousands and thousands of copies, here's what he might do. And this is the reality. As for Greek manuscripts of your Bible, Greek manuscripts, we have 5,800. Plato, seven. Us, 5,800. We keep finding more Greek manuscripts. You, you put in other languages, Syriac, uh, just, uh, just a ton of other languages, Latin, whatever you might. Now you're in the tens of thousands of copies. You talk about early church fathers. Now we're millions of quotes of the New Testament. So Dan Wallace, he's a famous um, theologian who works with all of these manuscripts. He just says, we've got this embarrassment of riches. And with it, we've get, if you've got more copies, then you're going to get more discrepancies, but you're going to get far more confidence in what the text originally said. And that's what we have. So God preserves his word. And he preserved his word by not giving us preserving the original autographs, but by preserving thousands of thousands of copies. And again, we don't know why, but here's what we do know. We do know that God has always wanted his people to put the confidence, their confidence in his word. The tendency of the human heart is to misuse and make idols out of things we were never meant to make idols out of. So you could imagine how someone might make an idol out of some ink in parchment that was originally written by, say, Mark or Paul. And how they might then go and try to 
make that where they have the confidence. But our confidence has never been in scribbles or a piece of parchment. So the actual, like, literal letters, those aren't, like, that's not what's holy. It's not as if the ink itself is inspired ink or the parchment is some kind of divine substance. God's word is what's divine. God's word, that is what we put our faith in. God himself speaking. And so what he's done is he's preserved his word. He's preserved what he has said by the Holy Spirit, and that's what's inspired. And that's what we put our confidence in. And so the reason we're preaching one through eight is because we have confidence. This is God's word. This is what he spoke. And naturally, you might have the same tension that many have felt, which is, well, why does Mark end this way? Like there's this longer ending because it feels abrupt. They were afraid. They said nothing to anyone. And so what's going on? And so that's what we're going to spend our time diving into. What's going on in verses one through eight? Mark ends his gospel this way. So that's what we're going to do. So we're going to look again at three things. Their expectation, the unexpected happening, and then their response. So let's pick up our text in verses one and two, which is on the screen for you or Uh, You can open your Bible to Mark 16, verses 1 and 2. Here's what we see. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So um, I think right, it's right at the beginning of this text. You already start getting a sense like something's different. Something's changed. Because how how did the last text end but with the sun had darkened, like the, the, well, the land was dark, completely dark. And it represented God's judgment falling over the land. It's just hours of deep darkness. And Mark, who is, wastes no words in his gospel, says the sun had risen. So here's these ladies going to the tomb. And Mark notes the sun's risen. Something's changed. We, we've moved from judgment of God in darkness to light has now broken through. So that's the scene that they're walking and we see in verse three, their expectation. So here it is. Here's their conversation. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Because the, the expectation as they're walking is that Jesus is going to be in the tomb dead. And so they're walking and it's the women and they're like, how are we going to move this tomb or the stone? Because the men, what are the men doing? They've locked themselves in a room and are hiding away. And so the men can't move the stone. So the women are walking saying, what are we going to do? I I guess we're going to figure it out when we get there. And so that's their expectation. And the reality is the unexpected happened. And you move to verses four through six and this how are we going to move the stone is answered for them in a way they never, like they never dreamed was going to happen. The stone was rolled away. They didn't need to worry about moving the stone. It had been rolled away because Jesus had risen. So here's what we see. This is verse, verse six. This is an angel. After the women have seen the stone rolled away, they walk in and this is what he says. Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. He's not there anymore. 
So the women, they, they come to find Jesus in the tomb to anoint him, which would have been this like a uh, kind of paying respects to the dead in that culture. And they can't because the body of Jesus is not there. He's risen from the dead. The tomb couldn't house him. Like death could not keep him down. He's alive. That's what they find. And so we said last week that the cross is a centerpiece of the Christian faith, but the cross would not be the centerpiece of the Christian faith if it were not for the resurrection. Because the resurrection is what takes the the gruesome reality, the darkness of the cross, the judgment of the cross, and transforms it from death and destruction into life. That Jesus rose from the dead. So we don't just as believers affirm that Jesus died, we affirm that he rose again. And so Paul picks this up in the 15th chapter of his letter to the Corinthians. And it's in this section where he says, look, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, our faith, it's, it's in vain. It's meaningless. And he starts out the letter by saying, we have something of first importance as believers. And so I want you to see how what he says there, that what's of first importance, I want you to see how it mirrors what we see in our text. Because what Paul is saying is of first importance. What I want you to see is it's grounded in history in a reality, in an event that really happened. So this is a guy, David Garland should show me this, but here we go. So here's 1 Corinthians on the left and Mark on the right. Paul says of first importance, we shared you what's the first importance, that is that Christ died for our sins. Here's Mark. You are looking, this is our text, you are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. Keep going. He was buried. Our text, see the place where they laid him. He was raised on the third day. Here's our text. He has risen. He's not here. You're not going to find him here. He appeared to Cephas, Peter, and and then to the 12. Verse 7. Then tell disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. They will see him just as he told you. So Mark, Paul, they're going out of their way to say, this is a reality that happened. This is real. This is history. And so it's no accident that Mark says, the angel says to the women, like, look, you're looking for Jesus who was crucified and you saw it. You saw him die. And now look, you know that he was buried. You were just there. We just saw in chapter 15, the women were there. Like, look, this is where he laid. He's not there anymore. And so I like, this is not this like magical, spiritual make-believe imaginary moment, the angel is going out of his way to ground them in real historical events. You saw him die. You saw him lay here. He's not here. And you're going to see him. And why does it matter? It matters because if Jesus just died and somehow his body just disappeared or someone took it, that changes everything. But if he died and rose again, then it means that death did not have it, the victory it thought it would have. Sin did not win. Jesus rose from the dead. And we're going to talk about the significance. But here is, we, we quoted this last time, but here's the Nicene Creed summarizing what we as believers affirm. This is what we believe. For our sake, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. It doesn't stop there. This is what it says. And rose again on the third day in accordance with the scripture. He rose. He rose from the dead. Now, that reality that Jesus rose from the dead, you might be thinking, like, what does that have to do with me today, though? 
Like that is a that is an interesting historical fact that he rose from the dead. But, but like, what's the relevance to me here now, this far removed from the resurrection? And I was just I was actually just listening to um, someone comment on uh, the president, the current president of El Salvador. It was kind of interesting. His policies, what he does. But if I'm honest, and I think if, if you're honest, um, unless you have some connection to, to El Salvador, like that just doesn't really matter that much to you. Be, not because it, like you don't care about the people of El Salvador, but you're just kind of removed from it. It's just, you're just like, it's, it's distant, it's far off, it's, it's over there. And the, and the question is, like, is, that, is the resurrection like that? Like, yeah, this happened 2,000 years ago. He rose from the dead, but like, what, does this affect me today? And if it does, how? And so that's uh, my question. Like, what, what, what is the relevance of the resurrection? So I, I'm going to give you at least three. There's plenty more than three, but here's three. I just want you to hear these three. Why does it matter? Um, here's one. Again, 1 Corinthians. This is Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. 2,000 years ago, Christ died. And if he didn't rise from the dead, here's the reality. You today would be still dead in your sin. Wouldn't be paid for. It would mean that at the cross, God's judgment of sin was poured out and that was the end. Sin won. But what we see in the Bible is that Christ rose again. And what it meant is that Jesus was then declared. This is Paul in the first chapter of Romans. He says, Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power. How? By his resurrection from the dead. His rising from the dead meant death did not win. Sin did not win. It has been conquered in Christ. So this morning, you think, how does the resurrection affect me? Well, if you feel the weight of your sin, the reality is you stand condemned before our holy God because you fall short of his glory. And you feel that weight. And if Christ doesn't rise from the dead, that would be your reality for now and evermore. But it's not. Christ did rise from the dead, so your faith is not futile, and you who are in Christ are no longer in sense. That's the reality of the resurrection. That's why it matters. So here's how John Owen puts it. The death of death and the death of Christ. I think I was Owen. You can correct me if I'm getting my Puritan wrong, but it's the death of death and the death of Christ. And this is what I would add, the death of death and the death of Christ because he rose again. What it means is you're not going to die anymore. You're not going to stay dead. That is, you will die probably physically unless Jesus returns. But the wages of sin being death is not your reality. You will rise because Jesus rose. So we have the death of death and the death of Christ because he rose. Again, okay, here we go. Second, second reality of the resurrection. It means you have an inheritance. It means you got a promise. It means you got a destination, a place that you're going. So um, we're getting ready to go to Colorado. Uh, next Friday. It's a long drive. I don't know, 12 hours, 25, depending on how many times our kids need to stop. Um, it's a long drive. How do you get through a long drive? We know where Lita and Poppy's house is. That's where we're going. Each mile, we're getting closer. She's still crying back there, and we're still like, we're going. <laughs> we're driving because I like you endure because I know where we're going, and I want to get there. The resurrection, that's how it works. When the resurrection happened, it gave you a promised inheritance, a destination. So um, here's 1 Corinthians. Again, 1 Corinthians 52. In a moment, this is a promise to believers because of the resurrection. In, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. That's going to happen. 
and the dead will be raised imperishable and shall be changed. You're going to die. One day that trumpet's going to sound and you're going to rise from the dead. And here's what Paul goes on to say. The sting of death is, is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to so you die and you would be dead in your sin. But, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ, victory. How did that power come? The resurrection. That power, that victory, because he rises from the dead, he rose in victory and now we have victory. Therefore, my beloved brothers, in light of the resurrection, therefore, listen to what he says, be steadfast and movable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So you struggle with sin today. Life's hard. You feel the weight. The kid is crying and has been for hours and you still, how do you keep going and not stop? You know the destination. And so you stay steadfast. You stay immovable amid the hard realities of life. My marriage is hard. My kids are hard. My work is hard. The reality of the brokenness of the world is hard. Death stings when my parents pass away, my friends abandon, whatever it is. How do you endure? Paul's answer, one of the ways, the resurrection. That's how. You remember that you have a destination. You're going to rise from the dead. So let me uh, say it this way. Tim Keller uh, passed away this week. Um, just a huge gift to the church if you don't know who Tim Keller is. And uh, he died from cancer. Years ago, he was diagnosed with cancer. He died at 72. He died at home. And his, uh, his daughter recently said, um, you know, we were all there. And, uh, but he waited to die until we all left. And his, um, his wife came in and kissed him on the forehead. And he breathed his last. And so a couple years ago, Tim Keller was asked, what would you say to a young person who's anxious about the future? Tim Keller at this point has been diagnosed with cancer. He knows the end is near. He didn't know it was two years, but he knew it was coming. Here's what he said. If Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, and Tim Keller believed he was raised from the dead, he knew he was raised from the dead, if Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, if he really got up, walked out, and was seen by hundreds of people and he talked to them, if he was raised from the dead, then you know what? Everything's going to be okay. Whatever you're worried about, whatever you're afraid of, everything is actually going to be okay. And this is uniquely Christian. It's not just that we have heaven promised, like some kind of ethereal uh, consolation prize. He says it, it, it's because in the resurrection, Jesus doesn't just promise you're going to rise from the dead. You're going to rise from the dead and you're going to inherit a new heavens and new earth. And all the brokenness that you feel, cancer that takes Tim Keller at 72 years old, it's all going to be made new. And all the sad things are going to become untrue. All the brokenness, all the aches, all the pains, it's going to be renewed in a new heavens and new earth. And so Tim Keller, he says this, he said, look, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. My wife and I cry a lot right now. 
Here's what he says. We're weeping together and we're crying at times because the reality overwhelms us. But if Jesus rose from the dead, it's going to be okay. And that doesn't mean that you don't cry anymore. But it means that when you cry, at some point, you wipe the tears and you say, because of the resurrection, all of the brokenness that I feel, it's going to be okay. And you cry some more. But you say, it's going to be all right. Because I've got a destination. I'm going to rise from the dead. The resurrection is not some 2,000-year-old, far-off, distant reality. You're struggling today? Remember, you got a destination. All right, we got to keep going. The third thing, the resurrection secures that we have no more fear. There's a lot of fear in this verse, and the resurrection actually creates the fear. So you might think it odd that I would then say that the resurrection takes away fear but it does. So I want you to see that. And so we'll look this final, just a few minutes at their response, the fear. So the angel uh, <laughs> says, don't be afraid. What says this, go, uh, this is verses seven and eight. Would you go, this is to the women, go uh, tell his disciples and, and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Therefore you will see him just as he told you. And, and they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. Fear, that's what you see. The women, they walk out, they're afraid. Tristan, uh, Tristan McGrath, he's sitting back here, really help me in this. Help me see this reality. This reality of fear. In this text, this reality of fear in Mark, and what Mark has to say about fear, and what he says is the opposite. So, uh, think about this. This is kind of the climactic moment of fear in the Gospel of Mark. Fear has been pretty prominent in his Gospel. Jesus walks on water. What happens? The disciples are afraid. He heals a ton of people. The crowds, they're afraid. The religious leaders, they fear him. Even the disciples fear. Now the women, they're afraid. At, at this point in the Gospel, pretty much everyone's been struck by awe or fear. Trembling. This is the most like, miraculous moment in the entire gospel of Mark. Jesus rose from the dead. And what do they do? They fear. They're afraid. Why? Because the resurrection leaves no doubt. It means without any question that Jesus is who he said he was, the very son of God. The resurrection means that God himself was with us. And God himself has risen from the dead. The reality is that Jesus in all his authority and all power is displayed at the resurrection. He has all of it. And the reality is that God will stand before them in the resurrected person of Jesus. And that means there is no part, no part of their life that is not affected by Jesus. Not even death is unaffected by who Jesus is. All power, all authority stands in this person, Jesus, who is risen from the dead. And so it's the right response to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that they would be in awe and fear and tremble. Because here's the thing. This is how Tristan put it. It's so true. Look, the, the disciples, all throughout Jesus' ministry, what do they view his ministry as? Earthly. 
What did they view his words as? Earthly. What did they view his mission as? Earthly. They're holding on to this earthly Messiah. Jesus rises from the dead. He's heavenly. That's what's clear. He rose from the dead. He's not earthly only. He is earthly. He took on body. But now it's so clear. This one is the heavenly one, God himself, who took on flesh. So what do you do with the awful reality that God sent before them, that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, Mark's got an answer. What do you do with the fact that God is not far off, but near? I love this. He's whisper close. What do you do with that? Mark 5, 36. Do not fear, only believe. That's Mark's answer. What do you do with fear? What do you do with that? It causes you to tremble that God is standing before you. Don't fear, but believe. Here it is again. Why? For even the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So why does faith cause fear to rightly hit us, that God is before us, but then cause fear to flee and be replaced with joy? How? Why? Well, what faith does is that it means this one who died and rose again, this one who we rightly tremble before, God himself, what faith does is for those who trust in Jesus, it means that this God himself came and did this and has all power and all authority and he uses it not to condemn you, but to give his life as a ransom for you. So it changes this awful, fearful reality that God stands before you and no part of your life remains untouched. He sees it all and he's for you. That's what faith does. And so I don't think it's any accident that Mark ends his gospel with this word. They said nothing for they were afraid because I think Mark, he knows one, that his readers know from other accounts that the women did not end here. They go on to proclaim. They come out of this fear. But I think he ends here because he wants us to end with a cliffhanger. He wants us to end with the reality. This is a fearful, awful trembling reality that God is with us and he leaves you with the question, what will you do with that fearful reality? Will you stay stuck in your fear or will you respond in faith? Mark begins his gospel by saying that it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And I think he ends intentionally with the same note, this is now the beginning of a new reality. The beginning of the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. And Mark has begun the last chapter for you, but it's the beginning. It's the beginning of the chapter. Jesus rose from the dead. And how will you respond? How will the chapter end? If this was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is the beginning of the reality of Jesus rose from the dead. And will you respond by staying stuck in your fear or will you respond? Will the story end for you by responding, not in fear, getting the last word, but in belief that this one rose from the dead and that you would say, my faith is in him and I will not be afraid, but I will go out and I will tell many I will go out and I will live in light of this resurrection. And so here's 
what we get to do now. As a church, for those who, when you hear the ending of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, and you hear this trembling reality that God is before us, if you put your faith in Jesus and know the good news that he died for you, he invites you to the table, that he's for you, so for you that he would bring you a sinner and say, come join me at my table. And so this morning, for all who trust in Jesus, if that's you, if you this morning put your faith in the Son of God, this is what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus is the misunderstood suffering servant who gave his life as a ransom. If you put your faith in him and count yourself as those who are counted among those who he gave his life as a ransom, you're invited to this table. You don't have to be a member here, but you just need to be trusting in Jesus. And so what we're going to have to do is the, the, the servers are going to come, they'll come with the elements, and we'd invite you to join us. Now, if you're not, if that's not you, I would ask, would you come and look face to face to the reality that Jesus rose from the dead? And what that means is that God, God is calling you to account for your sin, and would you come to the only place that you have hope, to this Jesus who died and rose again? Would you come not to this table, but to him? and put your trust in him. So the servers will come, they'll distribute the elements, and then would you hold them? And uh, the band is going to play when the elements are passed, but I'll come and I'll lead us to take them together. So I would love to pray. And then um, when they're done, they will come and distribute. Father, thank you for the awesome reality that your son rose from the dead. And that because of faith in Christ, that is good news for us. Not a fearful reality, but a reality of great joy. Meaning we we no longer are dead in our sins. We have a final destination, a place that we're going. And we are not stuck in fear, but have faith in good news. As the elements come, we remember that we proclaim your death until your son would come again. And so come soon. But now we pause to remember. Be with us now, Father. In your son's name we pray. Amen.